Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Friends, when you hear the word worship, what is it that comes to mind? What are those mental images, what are those things that come to mind when you hear the word worship? Maybe you think of Sunday mornings, you think of coming to church, you think of our beautiful sanctuary that we get to worship in together. Maybe you think of liturgy, maybe you think of a pastor wearing a white dress, maybe you think of the pipe organ, maybe you think of some of the beautiful songs that we sing, or the choir, maybe you think of coming and receiving God's body and blood. For many of us, I think at the center of that, when we think of worship, we think of what happens on a Sunday morning when the church comes together to receive God's gifts and respond to Him with our prayers, with our praises, with our offerings. But what do you think about when you think of work? If you're like me, you think of the 9 to 5 grind. You think of going to the office, or maybe in COVID-19 land, it's going to your home office and spending way too long on the computer or on way too many Zoom calls. You think of all this stuff that we have to do to support our family, to make a living. You think of the Monday to Friday, or maybe it's the chores that you have to do around your house to keep your house functioning and looking like you want it to look. And for many of us, that's the images that come to mind when we hear this word, work. And for most of us, as we hear these words, worship and work, we don't have a hard time distinguishing between the two. For instance, I can pull out these pictures and we can run through them and let's play this game together real quick. I'm going to show you a picture and you're going to help me and you're going to shout out and say, is this worship or is this work? So our first one. A mom changing a baby's stinky diaper. Is that worship or work? I think most of us agree that that's probably work. Or how about this one? Coming to church and being at church and... That's worship, right? Okay, how about this dude? He's at the office. He's working on his computer. He's doing all the stuff he has to do. Work or worship? Yeah, most of us are going to say work in that moment. Or how about this person? They're at the beach and they're reading the Bible and they're having some quiet time, a devotional time with God. Work or worship? Most of us would probably say worship in that moment. Or how about this? A coach who's coaching a soccer team. Work or worship? Most people would say that's probably more work. How about everybody's favorite task in the whole world? Laundry! Definitely work, right? Or how about as a family sits down to the dinner table and they're saying grace, they're saying their prayer before dinner? Probably worship, right? Or how about these dudes? They're out on the construction site, doing construction, building something. Most of us would probably call that work. And as you think about these ideas, that's not that hard of a task. That's not that hard of a game to play. Why? Because if we're honest, we're really good at compartmentalizing our lives. We talked about this a few months ago as we pulled out all these tea cans and we had a can for everything, right? And we go, well, this is our worship life, and this is our work life, and this is our school life, and our 
home life and our neighborhood life. And we, we have all these different compartmentalizations. And as we begin to think about these things, we can very easily say this is where it fits. Because we created a nice little neat context for everything. And so things that are sacred, things that are holy, things that are churchy, our faith life, we say, yeah, that is in my worship bucket, and I can call those things a part of my worship life. Sunday morning, yep, that's worship. But then, <laughs> the things that are secular, the things that are ordinary, the things that are part of normal life, getting up and driving to work on a Monday morning, that's definitely more a part of my work life. And I've received various comments from people over the years, and these are always incredibly fascinating. And I've had people come and say something to the effect of, Pastor, you have to understand, there's a difference between church and business. I can come and I can act one way, and we can do certain things at church on a Sunday morning, and I can say I believe certain things, and I can do certain things, and I can talk certain ways. But when I go to work on Monday morning, I'm entering into a different world. And I can't act the same way at work as I do at church. Business just doesn't work that way. And if I were to do my business the same way that the Bible talks about loving other people and forgiving people and doing other these things, I'd be a terrible business person and I would be out of business in no time. So pastor, you have to understand, I worship on Sunday morning, but I work Monday to Friday. Have you ever heard someone say that? Have you ever felt that tension in your life? The tension between the Monday to Friday and the Sunday? The tension between work and worship? Many may not be so blunt or so brave as to say it. But if we were to look at the evidence of your life, Will we see a disconnect between work and worship? And so here's the question that I'm going to invite us to grapple with here today. And it's this. Is there any connection between work and worship? Or are they two completely separate things that honestly should be kept completely separate? Friends, we're going to grapple with that today as we take a look at the lives of Saul and David. Saul, the guy who was Israel's first king, and David, the one that we heard last week, was just anointed as king. And what we're going to see is how we answer that question will have profound implications for not only how we live, but the trajectory of our lives and even our faith in God. And we see this coming to a head in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Verses 13 to 14. Here's what it says. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, that's David, in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Verse 14. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. As I read these words, I'm reminded of the opening words of Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities, right? 
it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. For David, it was the best of times, right? David is sky high. God has just chosen him. God has just anointed him to be king of Israel. From all the people, from all the clans of Judah, from all the nation of Israel, God chose David and he said, you're my guy. You're the one I want to be my next king. And as soon as he was chosen, as soon as he anointed, the spirit of God, the living, breathing presence of God, the equipping presence of God, the strength of God, the presence of God rushed upon and was with David, not only in that moment, but for the rest of his life. And what we're going to see in the life of David was that God was with David, God was working in and through David. That God was molding and shaping David into the man after God's own heart that David was in the midst of becoming. For David's life was truly like we talked about. A canvas in the hands of a master artist. And God was already at work turning a blank canvas into a beautiful work of art. I think we can agree that was truly the best of times. But we also saw the worst of times, right? The worst of times was King Saul. For we hear that not only was his replacement chosen and anointed and filled with the Spirit of God. What does it say about Saul? Go back to verse 14. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And a harmful spirit of the Lord tormented him. God's spirit left Saul in that moment. This was bad news, right? If God's spirit leaves you, you're going, uh-oh. I don't know about you, but these are the most terrifying words to read. The idea of God's spirit could leave somebody. But not only did God's spirit leave Saul, we're told that God spent another spirit, a harmful spirit, to torment him. For God not only gave up on Saul as king, but God was done with him. And now God was punishing him. I don't know about you, but I read those words, I hear those words, and that's pretty terrifying to hear. And so I ask the question, and maybe you're asking the same question, what on earth would lead to this happening? Why would God give up on Saul? Why would God take his spirit from Saul? What could Saul have done to get to that point? And honestly, friends, it all comes down to those two ideas that we started off talking about. Work and worship. And to see that, we have to go back and we have to look at the life of Saul. And we have to see how it develops. For you see, Saul really enters onto the scene when, quite honestly, the people of Israel were acting like toddlers. When you, when, and a toddler sees someone having something and it's something they want, what do they do? They throw a fit until they get it too, right? They have an ice cream, I want an ice cream, and they're going to throw a fit until they get an ice cream. Or they have that toy, now I want that toy. Because they don't understand that someone else could have something and that's good for them, but it's not right for them. So what happens? The people of Israel cry out to God. They whine and they complain and say, God, everyone else has a king. We want a king. Doesn't that sound like a toddler? 
And in that moment, God says, okay, you want to complain enough? You want a king? I'll give you a king. And so the prophet Samuel was sent out to anoint and choose a king on God's behalf for his people. And so Samuel looks out over the nation of Israel and goes, who's the guy? And God leads him to a guy by the name of Saul. And from an outward appearance perspective, Saul is truly all that in a bag of chips. Saul was an awesome specimen of a man. He was tall. Literally, guys, Scripture says he was a head and shoulders above everyone else. He was tall. He was dark. He was handsome. He was someone everyone looked up to. He was a natural-born leader. He was great and strong. He was a mighty warrior. He was a great military leader. He was everything that you could ever want in a king. And so God said, okay, this is our guy. We're going to anoint Saul as king. And he was honestly everything that everyone ever thought they wanted in a king. He had the perfect resume. He had the perfect qualifications. And honestly, the reign of King Saul started out incredibly well. For his reign was put to the test where he became king and then he went home to continue to farm. Because in that time, being king wasn't necessarily a full-time job. So he goes home and the people at Jabesh Gilead are being threatened by the Ammonites. So what happens in 1 Samuel 11? Saul raises up an army to protect the people at Jabesh Gilead from the Ammonites. He raises up not just a few people, not just a few farmers, but he gets 330,000 men. Talk about leadership to be able to call in a moment's time and get an army of 330,000 people at one moment to come and protect a single city. And yet this is what happens. And so Saul brings them together. They come in and they kick tail. They kick the Ammonites' tail. And they win, and they have this great army, and everyone's going, Saul, you're awesome! Saul, you're amazing! And in that moment, Saul does the very thing that he should do. Instead of rubbing his victory in the faces of those who are his detractors, and yes, wherever there is a leader, there will be detractors, what Saul does is he gives all glory and credit and honor to God and says, No, dudes, it's not me. It's God who gave us this victory. It's God who made this happen. And in that moment, we see a great leader, a great warrior, a great military man, a man who was good and gracious. And in that moment, Saul acknowledged that everything he had done was due to the power of God, the Spirit of God that was at work within him. Friends, this was a great start. Don't miss that. This, the reign of Saul, his first test, he passes with flying colors. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 12, we see the prophet Samuel wanting to do a farewell tour of sorts. And so Samuel goes, hey guys, it's time for me to retire. It's time for me to right off into the sunset. So he comes to the nation and he gives kind of his last talk, his last charge, his last address to the people. I want to read you just a portion of that because it helps us to understand what happens with Saul. And here's what he says. First Samuel chapter 12, verses 20 to 24. 
And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Circle those words. Serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and, underline, circle this next part, serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. So what's the parting message of the great prophet Samuel? Don't turn from God. Remember all the great things he's done. And here's the charge. Here's the calling. Serve God with all your heart. And he doesn't say this once, but he says this twice. He says, serve God with all your heart. People of Israel, this is your calling. Salah is their leader. Salah is their king. Serve God with all of your heart. No matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, your calling in everything that you do is to serve God with all your heart. I'll give you a hint. What Samuel was inviting them to see was that worship wasn't just a matter of what happened on Sunday morning. It wasn't just a matter of going to church and Sunday school. It wasn't a matter of just putting your offering in the offering plate. It wasn't just celebrating the feast. Serving the Lord with all your heart was just as much of an act of worship as what they did on Sundays, what they did on their Sabbath day. For they were called to worship God in all that they did is they serve God with all their heart. But as the chapter switches from chapter 12 to 13, we see Saul put to the test. Once again, Saul is having to head out in battle. This time it wasn't the Ammonites. This time it was the big bad Philistines. They were a mighty opponent. And so God promises to Saul and the nation of Israel that they will have victory over the nation of the Philistines. But God says, here's what I want you to do. Instead of just running out into battle right now, I want you to wait. And we all know what it's like to wait. We all know that waiting is our favorite thing in the world, right? But God says, Saul, I want you to wait. Not just for a day, but I want you to wait for seven days. And on the seventh day, here's what's going to happen. The prophet Samuel's going to come. You guys are going to worship. You're going to have an act of worship. You're going to have a sacrifice to God. You're going to worship God. And after you've had this sacrifice to God, after you've had this act of worship, then you're going to go out into battle, and then you're going to have victory. But I need you guys to wait. So what happens? Check it out. 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 8. He, that Saul, waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul goes, okay, I'll wait. They wait for seven days, and on that seventh day, Samuel didn't come right away. So what happens? The people of, of Israel begin to get anxious. They get tired of waiting. The people are freaking out, and the people are beginning to disappear and go home. So how does Saul respond? Verse 9. 
So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed that the Philistines had mustered at Mishmash, I, now, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. And I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. What happened? Saul panicked. Saul abandoned God's call. And he began to take things into his own hands. He began to think not as a man of God, but as a man of the military. He began to think and say, as a leader, what do I need to do in this moment? In his mind, I'm sure he's thinking desperate times call for desperate measures. From a leadership perspective, from a military leader perspective, from a warrior perspective, don't miss this. What he did was smart. What he did was actually a brilliant move. But what we see happening here is a separation happening between worshiping God and work. What we see happening here is listening to God and leading within his own wisdom, his own strength, his own prowess. Check out Samuel's response, verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you for the, then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. What's Samuel's response? Dude, you're an idiot. Honestly, that's what it's saying. You're disobeying God, and you're going to lose everything. But friends, here's the reality. God didn't need a great leader. He didn't need a great military mind. He didn't need a great warrior. What was God after? Verse 14, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. God was looking for a man who would listen to him, who would serve him, who would be obedient to him. He was looking for a man after his own heart. And friends, don't miss this. Saul was probably a good dude. He probably went to church and Sunday school on a Sunday morning. He probably gave his offering. But what was his fatal flaw? There was no connection in Saul's mind between his life of worship and his life of work between his Sunday morning and his Monday morning. Between following God and leading the people. And what Samuel's saying is, Saul, this one fatal flaw is going to cost you everything. Check out what happens next. We flip over to 1 Samuel chapter 15. This time, there's a new enemy. Enemy. This time, it's not the Philistines, it's not the Ammonites. 
This time it's the Amalekites. Seems like it's always an ites, doesn't it? And this time, God commands Saul. He says, when you go out into battle, I want you to destroy them, and I want you to take everything. Check it out, verse 3. 1 Samuel 15, verse 3. Now go and strike Amalekite, Amalek, and devote to destruction all that they have. All that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So he says, okay, I'm going to give you victory, but your job is to go and destroy everything. Don't keep anything. Destroy everything. So the people, they go out. Saul leads them to victory. They have this great and awesome, total and complete destruction of the Amalekites. And the people go, you know, Saul, there's some pretty good stuff here. What if we were to take some of this stuff and we were to offer it to God? And Saul, who knows what God has commanded, says, you know what? I'd rather keep the people happy. And I'd rather give them what they want and keep them on my side than obey God. And what we see in that moment is Saul leading not out of faith, but out of fear. Why? He's created a distinction between work and worship. For Saul's struggle that we see really throughout the entire life of Saul is that Saul believed he could be king in his own wisdom and in his own strength. Saul listened to the people in his own wisdom, rather than listening to God. Saul reigned not from faith, but from fear. And the fatal flaw, the struggle that we see all throughout the life of Saul, is that his work as king had nothing to do with his worship of God. And that's why, as we flip through the pages of 1 Samuel 16, 14, we hear, Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Why? Because in Saul's mind, his work as king had nothing to do with his worship of God. And yet what God desired is what God is birthing in David. David, the guy who served God and served Saul. He played the harp and the lyre for Saul because he saw it as an act of worship of God. He saw leading the people of Israel as an act of worship to God. Him going on to take on the mighty Goliath, as we'll hear about in a bit. Him going into battle was an act of worship and obedience to God. He saw his role as king as an act of worship to God. For David was truly a man after God's own heart. For David, faith wasn't just a church thing, but faith was for real life. It was for 24 7, 365. Everything he did for David was an act of worship. Work was worth it, worship. Math homework was worship. Laundry was worship. Diapers were worship. And everything he did was for God's glory 
and in obedience to God. Friends, this reminds me of the words that we read, that Julie read so for, well for us in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. Here's what Paul writes. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This sounds like that last sermon of Samuel, doesn't it? Everything you do, in word or deed, whatever you do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. What's Paul saying? What was Samuel saying? Everything is worship. Maybe not everything is work, but everything is worship. Work and worship were never meant to be divided. But we can't forget the very foundation of this. And we hear the foundation in Colossians 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. What's the foundation? Sunday school answer. Jesus. Friends, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. For here's what he's saying. You are someone who have been chosen by Jesus. God chose you of all the peoples of the earth. God chose you to be his own. Jesus gave up heaven for you. And he came here on a mission. He came here with a purpose that he might lay down his life. And so for while we were still weak, for while we were still sinners, while we were still ungodly, while we were still the enemies of God, at the right time, Jesus Christ laid down his life to die our death on the tree, that we might live his life, that we might have life, that we might be chosen, that we might be called, that we might be forgiven, that we might be called children of God so that we might be his priceless possession, more valuable to him than anything else in all of creation. And what Paul understood, what David understood, what Samuel understood, is that as ones who have been chosen by God, as ones who have been anointed by God, as ones who have received the living, breathing breath of God within us and the Holy Spirit, all of our life is to be lived to give glory and honor to God. All of our life is lived as an act of praise and worship to God. All of our life is lived through the life that Jesus gave us by dying and rising again for us. All of our life is lived through the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells in you and in me. All of our life is lived as the Holy Spirit uses us as his tapestry. Is God the master artist paints his masterpiece in you. And there's not an inch, a centimeter, or even a millimeter of this canvas that is not a part of your relationship with God. That's not a part of your worship of God. For it's all worship. Work and worship. God's calling upon your life is to be a David. A David that sees everything that he does as an act of worship to God. It's so easy to be a Saul, to compartmentalize our lives and say, no, work's over here, worship's over here, we have to keep them separate. And yet, the challenge for you and me today 
to say, how have we compartmentalized our lives and how do we separate work and worship? And how can these words of Paul become what we live? And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. As that dividing line between work and worship begins to disappear, and your entire life becomes a living, breathing act of worship to God. In the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.